Uh, as we start, I want you to think about your life just for a moment. Okay, you wake up this morning. What's one of the first things you do, or, or a lot of us do? You reach for a device that you can hold in your hand that not only allows you to communicate across the world, but gives you access to unprecedented levels of information. It's extraordinary. Or think about your holidays or travel. Okay, depending on your bank balance, you can hop on a plane and go just about anywhere that you want to go, having researched it all beforehand on that device of yours. And on that device of yours, you can post photos of where you are and how beautiful it is to make everybody else back home jealous. Okay, or think about your health. Diseases that in the relatively recent past would have been a death sentence can now be cured, and we largely take it all for granted. Okay, we live at a time when technology has dramatically, radically changed all of our lives. So let me ask you a question. What are you doing here on a Sunday morning? Why are you here? Because whether you know it or not, whether you realise it or not, you are here because Christianity says that 2,000 years ago, on a Sunday, on the first day of the week, in an age very different from our own, a tomb was found to be empty. And Christianity argues that the fact of that empty tomb, the fact of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, can and should impact your life in ways way beyond anything that technology can do. Okay, but if that is to happen, I think you need to know three things. You need to know that the resurrection of Christ is actually true, that it actually happened, that it's believable. Secondly, it needs to do more than just satisfy your mind. It needs to satisfy your heart. You've got to experience the resurrection as true. You've got to feel it as true, or else it'll have no power to change your life. But thirdly, the resurrection, if it's going to change your life, has got to give you the resources you need to get through life, particularly when life is hard, and not just for you, but for others. So if, you're gonna, if the resurrection is going to shape and form your life in profound ways, it's got to be rational, it's got to be experiential, and it has got to be full of hope. And this morning I want to show you that it is all three of those things. Firstly, it's rational. Now this week the commune put a notice through our door inviting parents in our village to a talk on how to help teach their kids about the dis disinformation, the fake news, the, the deep fakes that their kids are going to encounter online. Now, what struck me about that notice is that while people on either side of the political divide can't agree on who it is that is producing the fake news, whichever one of them it is, everyone agrees that it matters that whatever people might say about truth being relative, and you can have your truth and I can have mine, or that we live in a post-truth world, deep down, we all know that truth matters. And every one of us live 
like truth matters. We prosecute airline manufacturers, airplane manufacturers, who make untrue safety claims. We complain if our, or we would complain if our employer said that he had paid us when he hadn't. And if Sue told me, Sue, my wife told me, darling, I have made you a delicious dinner, it's in the kitchen, and I go looking for it, and it's not there, because she hasn't, we don't all go, well, if she thinks she's made dinner, if she believes she's made dinner, if she identifies as one who has made dinner, that's what matters. No, we don't respond like that. We go, nope, you are going hungry, mate. Okay, we all live, we all know that truth matters, and we live as if truth matters. As we don't trust things that are untrue, and we trust things that are true. So, is the resurrection of Christ true? Did it actually happen? Can you be intellectually satisfied that Jesus, a man called Jesus of Nazareth really did physically rise from the dead and then go out and build your life on that? Can you believe that? Can you know that? Well, look what John tells us. Firstly, Mary Magdalene and the disciples had no expectation that this would happen. And across all the gospel accounts of the resurrection, and despite their differences, one of the things that stands out is the total lack of anticipation that Christ would rise. No one is ever presented as that one faithful disciple, that one who deep down knew it would happen. You are Nathaniel. He, he always believed this would happen. Deep down, he always knew this. He was expecting this. He believed it would happen. Everyone else doubted, but not Nathaniel. It's the opposite, isn't it? None of them are expecting it. John tells us, verse 1, that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and the darkness matches her mood. Elsewhere, we're told, the reason that she's come, and it is to finish the job of anointing Jesus' dead body. But instead of doing that, verse 1, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And in response, she doesn't leap for joy, does she? She's not standing there leaping for joy, going, yeah, it's happened, and I knew it would. She runs to the disciples and says, verse 2, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb meaning someone has taken his dead body. And when she's alone again at the tomb, verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Just look at her. Are those tears of joy? They're not, are they? They're tears of grief. Because when the angels ask her, why are you weeping? She replies, verse 13, they have taken away my Lord. But it's not just Mary who's not expecting it. John tells us of his own, you know, he's the other disciple in his account here. He tells us of his own moment of dawning faith, of dawning belief inside the tomb. But then he adds verse 9, For as yet they, meaning him and Peter, did not understand that the scripture that did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In other words, it was only after the event. It was only after they knew that he had risen 
that they went back to the Bible and started putting the pieces together. Man, it was, we, should have, we should have expected this. We could have expected this, but we didn't. Firstly, there's no expectation. Secondly, the stone. And in 1930, a British journalist called Frank Morrison decided to write a paper on the resurrection because he doubted its veracity. He, he thought that the resurrection did not happen, that it was basically unbelievable. But that paper, famous story, that paper turned into a book describing how he studied the Gospels and came to believe how the resurrection really did happen. And that book is titled, Who Moved the Stone? It's a question Mary's confronted with, isn't it? As she arrives at the tomb, who's moved the stone? It's the question every one of us are confronted with. Because no one, not the Jewish or the Roman authorities or the disciples, had any incentive to do it. So who moved it? Thirdly, there's the race. Mary runs to find Peter and John, tells them about the stone, and John says, verses 3 to 4, So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, in our family, if someone starts recounting something that has happened or something that um, happened to them whilst they were doing uh, something else and it all gets a bit too graphic, okay, someone will go, thank you, I don't think we need to know that, TMI, which is too much information. We don't need to know that, too much information. Are they making it up? No. They're telling the story, they're telling the truth but we don't actually need to know all the gory details. Now, sure, Peter and John's race on that first Easter Sunday morning is not gory. Again, we're not left going TMI. But did John really need to tell you that he beat Peter to the tomb? <laughs> but he does, doesn't he? Why does he do it? Because he's a guy, okay? He's a guy, and it happened... And it's exactly the sort of unnecessary eyewitness detail. It doesn't carry the story on at all, not linked to the, to the story, to the, to the main story, but it's exactly the sort of eyewitness detail that someone tells you when they're not making it up. And plus, because he's a guy, he's going to eat off this for years to come, hasn't he? In fact, he's been eating off it for 2,000 years. Okay, fourthly, so there's the race. Thirdly, there's the race. Fourthly, look at the burial cloths. Okay, because that's what Peter and John are doing. In fact, three times, using three different verbs for seeing, John tells us that it was these burial cloths, these grave cloths, that had previously been wrapped around <coughs> Jesus that caught their attention, that is focusing their thinking. Verse 5, stooping in to look, he, John, saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. But Peter, second in the race, did and verses 6 to 7, he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then John, winner of the race, went in, and verse 8, he saw and believed. 
Now, interestingly, one of the verbs that John uses for seeing is the word that we get our word for theorizing from. Okay, they're looking at these grave cloths, these burial cloths, and something about them does not make sense. Something about them is forcing them to think, to work out, man, what's happened here? What, what's happened? What, what explains what we're seeing? Because it's not just what they're not seeing, the absence of a body, it is what they are seeing, the presence of these grave cloths. What explains their presence in the absence of a body? Because if grave robbers had taken the body, they would not have wasted precious time unwinding all the linen cloths and all the spices, not least because those cloths and those spices were valuable and one of the reasons why they robbed graves in the first place. Plus, no friend or enemy of Jesus would first strip his body and unwind all of the cloths before taking it. Why not? Well, do you want to walk through the streets of Jerusalem with a naked, bloody, beaten body? You take it wrapped. So why are the grave cloths still there? Okay, but it's not just their presence. It's their arrangement. John says, verse 5, he saw the linen cloths lying there. And it's a verb that is used for placed or positioned not dumped or left in a heap. And there's the head cloth, verse 7, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And how they are arranged does not make sense. It's not like they have been torn off by Jesus who is desperately trying to get out and breathe and get out of the tomb. And they're not lying in a heap left by someone who's taken them off, trying to steal the body as quickly as possible. In fact, the word John uses for folded can mean twisted or coiled. So maybe what they are puzzling over is how are these cloths still wound as if they are still wound around the body and the body's not there? As the English pastor and writer John Stott says, these cloths are like a chrysalis that a butterfly has escaped from. And they're stood in the tomb theorizing. What explains what we're seeing? Now, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, Richard Baucom, who's professor of history at Cambridge, he says that John isn't just an eyewitness. He's a perceptive one. Because in verse 8, John tells us he saw and believed. He's seen the stone rolled away. He's seen the tomb is empty. And now he sees these grave cloths lying in the place where Jesus' body once was. And the truth begins to dawn on him. Okay, fifthly, the body. Because there is a body. It's just not a dead one. And one of the strange things, if you read the gospel accounts, one of the really strange things about the resurrection appearances of Jesus is that people don't recognize him, at least not to start with. I mean, just look at Mary. 
She's standing outside the tomb when she becomes aware of somebody standing behind her. Verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And she's just being emotional. She's, she's really upset. She's seen Jesus die. She has handled his dead body. Her, maybe her eyes are, are swollen from crying and her vision is blurred by tears. And she's not expecting to see Jesus, so she doesn't see Jesus. Is that what happened? Maybe. Except neither do the, do the disciples recognize Jesus on the uh, road to Emmaus. And they're not crying. They're out for a walk. And neither did the disciples out fishing. They're having a nice time on the lake. They didn't recognize him either. And what's interesting about that is that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead a few days previously, no one had any trouble recognizing Lazarus. You know, they unwind the same kind of grave clothes off of Lazarus, and there is no, is it Lazarus? Or isn't it Lazarus? Boy, I didn't recognize you, Lazarus. It's clearly Lazarus. But with Jesus, each time, he has to do something to get people to recognize him. And when he does, they do. Why would the gospel writers invent that? If they're making all of this up, why would you invent that? Because if you were making this up and they thought that Jesus was a mere man just like Lazarus, there wouldn't be any problem with recognition. Just like with Lazarus, it would be, oh, wow, Jesus, you're alive again. Or if they thought that Jesus was not merely human, that he was some kind of heavenly being, and they were making this up, they, they would have drawn on biblical or Jewish literature, which they had that describes heavenly beings. And Jesus would be blazing white, he'd be tall, he would be powerful, he would be the conqueror of death. In other words, if they were making this up, they wouldn't have come up with a resurrected Jesus who's a normal man, but he's not quite normal. Who they don't recognise, but then they do recognise, unless they're not making it up, unless this actually happened. You know, like when you meet an old friend who you haven't, you know, old friend from childhood who you haven't seen for years, and at first you don't recognize them, but then they go to you, hey, it's me, it's, it's Richard, remember me? And you look at them and you go, wow, it is you. I did not recognize you. But then the faith, face comes into shape. And so the Gospels are describing that in some way Jesus' resurrection body was his body. It's Jesus, but it's different. It's transformed. It's a body that could pass through burial cloths, leaving them neatly wound. But at the same time, a body that could be clung to and held. Sixthly, you can believe because Mary Magdalene is a woman. And she's the first to witness the resurrection. And you would never invent that. Not if you lived in their time. Not in a culture that refused to accept the testimony of women. Unless she really was the first one to the tomb. The first to see Jesus risen from the dead. So what I want to say to you is, that it's, this morning, it's as if you are John. It's as if you're standing in that tomb. 
and the stone has been rolled away. Ask yourself, who moved it? Who won the race? And why do you need to know that? There's no body, but there are burial cloths. And look how they're wound and how they're folded. And now turn and see Mary failing to recognize Jesus, but then recognizing him. And ask yourself, what am I going to do with this evidence? You see, if you're not yet a Christian, you live every day trusting that some things are true. And what I want to say to you is that you can do the same with Christ's resurrection from the dead. And if you are already a Christian, Paul says that to stand firm, the first thing that we need to do is put on the belt of truth. Because truth holds everything else together. So if this week, or in the weeks to come, you are tempted to doubt, or if one of your friends starts deconstructing, examine the evidence, because the evidence never changes. The evidence is as rock solid as it's always been. And be fully convinced that Christ has risen from the dead. And as you do, it will give you incredible confidence. Okay, but it's not just rational. Secondly, it's experiential. Now, we don't know masses about Mary Magdalene, but one of the things we do know is that Jesus delivered her from seven demons, and Jesus restored her dignity, and Jesus calmed her mind, and Jesus brought her back into society. So it is no wonder, as one old bishop puts it, that she was last at his cross and first at his grave. This is the guy who turned her life around. And it's no wonder why when Peter and John leave, Mary stays. As J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, wrote, love made her linger. But love also made her weep which is why the angels ask her, verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? Doh. It's obvious why she's weeping. Jesus is dead. His body's missing. She's grieving. What kind of a question is that? But that's their point, isn't it? Jesus isn't dead. And his body isn't missing. And no one's taken it away except for him. So they're not asking that question like there's some counsellor trying to understand her grief. It's like a gentle rebuke. Uh, Mary, why are you weeping on this day of all days? Mary, why are you weeping in this place of all places? The Son of God is risen from the dead. Sin has been conquered. Death has been defeated. Why are you weeping? You know, a few years, well, several years later, John will experience something similar. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. And he sees this vision of heaven opened in the throne room of God. And he's weeping over his and all of our sin and our unworthiness, until an elder from near the throne of God comes to him and says to him, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, 
has conquered. Mary is weeping over death. John is weeping over sin. And there is a time for weeping and for grieving because, guys, sin and death are no friend of ours. But all of us need something that can still our tears, something that can come to us in our grief. And atheistic secularism can never offer you that. But the resurrection of Christ can. Because sensing someone behind her, Mary turns, and Jesus repeats the angel's question before adding another. Verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And the answer to the second question is as obvious as the answer to the first one, isn't it? Except there's a question under the question. Mary, what kind of Jesus are you seeking? What kind of Messiah? What kind of Lord? A dead one? One who could save you but not himself? One who could be defeated by his enemies? One who death could hold? You see, the Jesus that Mary was seeking was far too small. And maybe that's true for you. You know, if you're not yet a Christian, maybe the Jesus that you're after is the outstanding teacher of life principles Jesus. Or maybe it's the great moral example Jesus. Or maybe you are a Christian and you do believe that Christ rose from the dead, but that is an intellectual belief. You believe it rationally. You're there rationally, but that truth has not yet settled deep into your heart. You don't experience it as true. It doesn't alter the way that you see your present or your future. It doesn't shape the way you see temptation or suffering doesn't change the way you see your gifts or your wealth, the way you deal with your failures or your successes. The resurrection of Christ from the dead doesn't yet shape all of your life. And above all, you still feel like you've got to earn God's approval. So I want you to see how Jesus treats Mary. She thinks he's the gardener. So verse 16 Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, Mary, just one word. As one commentator puts it, one word which remade her world as the savior of the world calls her by name. But I want you to notice the order it happens in. She doesn't call him teacher first. She doesn't first have to live up to his great moral example or apply his ethical demands to her life before earning the right to be accepted by him or experience his love for her. Because if she did, and if we did, we would spend our lives trying and never arriving, never achieving, never experiencing, never feeling his love. Instead, while she is still in her grief, while she is still in her failure to believe, while she is still looking for too small a Jesus, 
Jesus comes to her and calls her by name. And when he does, her world is made new. How can you experience that? Because you can. Because maybe your heart is aching or grieving. Or maybe you know this stuff intellectually, but you don't yet know it in your heart. How can you hear him call your name and hear him tell you, I am risen from the dead and all shall be well. How can you know that? Well, look what happens next. And we don't know for sure what happens next, okay, except that Jesus says to her, verse 17, do not cling to me. What happened? Has she thrown herself on him and is hug- giving him a great big hug? Has she thrown herself at his feet and is clinging to his feet? Whatever it is, somehow she is embracing him and she is trying to hold on to him. She thought that she had lost him forever, but he's alive and she has no intention of losing him again. So Jesus says to her, verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. What does he mean by that? I think two things. Firstly, in the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father frequently go hand in hand. Because we don't just worship a risen Jesus, we worship an ascended and reigning Jesus. But his ascension also goes hand in hand with his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So I think the first thing that Jesus is saying is, Mary, don't try and hold on to me. From now on, that is not how you are going to experience me. I am going to ascend to my Father, and I'm going to pour out the Spirit, and through the Spirit, you will experience me in ways that is beyond anything you have yet experienced. Listen, what is true for Mary is true for you. The tomb is empty, Christ is risen. And he is ascended, and through his spirit, you can experience his presence. How? Number one, by gathering with the Lord's people, by coming to church every week. Make that your priority. Make that your priority as a family, because this, amongst the Lord's people is where he dwells in a special way. And before you come, be praying, Lord, I want to meet with you. I want to sense you. I want to hear you speaking to my heart. I want to know that you are risen and reigning. So come expectantly, come prayerfully, and come. Secondly, when you come, sing. Sing with all your heart as if you mean it and until you mean it. And as you do, focus on him. I don't know about you. For me, It's almost a battle every Sunday. Am I going to be distracted by everything? Or am I going to focus my mind on the risen, reigning Christ? Do that battle in your heart, in your head every time you come. Thirdly, spend time every day, not just reading his word, but meditating on it. You know, somebody once said to me, you know, Bible reading and Bible meditation is like eating a roast dinner, little bit of meat, lots of potatoes. 
Okay, Bible reading, lots of potatoes, but you need some meat. So spend, even if it's just five minutes a day, meditate on God's word. You know, I'm currently meditating my way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Take one verse at a time and ask him to speak to you from it and feed on that verse until it erupts in prayer and worship to him. Prayer for yourself, prayer for others. Fourthly, when you sense a nudge to contact a person, you know, man, that person's on my mind. Maybe I should give them a call or pray for somebody or give to a need. Do it. Become responsive to the spirits prompting inside you. And as you do, you will experience the living, risen Jesus speaking to you and working through you. Because that's the second thing Jesus means. Verses 17 to 18, do not cling to me, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary, why isn't she to cling to him? Mary, there are other broken men and women who also need to hear that I am risen. So don't hold on. You've got work to do. You've got a message to share. Because thirdly and finally, it is full of hope. It's rational, it is experiential, and it is full of hope. You see, think who Jesus is sending Mary to go tell. These are disciples who just a few days before had abandoned him. Men who had promised him their undying loyalty but then denied they knew anything about him. Men who had failed and whose moral cowardice and sin has caught up with them. But what does Jesus call them? Go tell those bunch of no-hopers, that those useless things. No, verse 17, go tell my brothers, my brothers, and his father is their father, and his God is their God. How can they possibly deserve that? Answer, they don't. It's grace. They deserve to be consigned to the trash bin of history. But Christ has paid for their sins. Like Ash said, he's got the receipt. Debt paid. And he's paid for our sin. And at the cross, he has borne the judgment that we all deserve. But he has been raised from the dead, as Paul says, raised for our justification. Raised that we might be declared not guilty. The debt has been paid. They're clear of their debt. Because Jesus has paid it for them. So for them and for us... The resurrection says, guys, there is hope. There is hope in our failure. There is hope in our sin. There is hope in our suffering. There is hope in those times when life seems to have come to a dead end. Because the resurrection of Christ is the new beginning which makes possible all new beginnings. So this week... When you find yourself confronted by your failure, or you feel like life has taken you down a road that you didn't want to go, preach the resurrection to yourself. 
Tell yourself, Christ came for people like me, and he's always bringing life out of death. And let that change the way you treat and see other people, especially the hurting, especially the broken, especially the vulnerable. And go to them in the certain hope that God has something far better in store for them now and for all eternity. And as you do, I want you to remember that Christ is your brother. He is your elder brother. In 1550, in Reformation Germany, a Lutheran pastor called Erasmus Alberus wrote a catechism for his three-year-old daughter, Gertrude. And he would ask the questions, and she would give the answer. Okay, here's how it goes. He asks the questions, she answers. So the dad goes, is Christ your brother? Yes, father. God's only begotten son? The son of the living God is your brother? Yes, Father, really. So you are for sure a great and powerful queen in heaven because Christ in heaven is your brother? That I am, praise God. And he has saved me from the devil's kingdom and given me eternal life. You see, when you know intellectually and experientially that Christ is risen from the dead and that he is your elder brother, that he loves you and accepts you and he has your back and his God is your God and his father is your father, hope can flood your life and then spill out to those around you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you raised your son from the dead. Father, thank you that he is our sin bearer, but he is also our life giver. Father, thank you that in his resurrection is our resurrection, now and in the one to come. Father, help us to know it intellectually and believe it. Help us to experience it by your spirit. And then help us to live it, Lord. When life is hard, when life is good, with those around us, may our hearts be filled with the true hope that comes when we know and experience that Christ is risen from the dead. And in his name we pray. Amen.